Hello, this is Ruth. And this is Mike. And you found us again on Boomerangs. Hey, Boomers. Hello. I wanted to remind you that we do have an email address. It's Ruth at boomerangspodcast.com. So if you want to send us any comments. You need to spell that because your Ruth is not the normal Ruth. Oh, yes, I do. My Ruth is R-U-T-H-E at boomerangspodcast.com, which I won't spell because I figure everybody knows how to spell that. Also, should you be listening to this on Apple Podcasts, if you just feel like wandering down past the title of the episode and giving us a five-star rating, that would be really wonderful. Oh, we love that. We would love that so very, very much. Praise is always welcome. <laughs> um, I can't give it to myself. I have to get it from others. <laughs> oh, I think you give it to yourself. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about, or I'm going to talk about um, Orange is the New Black and the end of that show. And uh, we're going to discuss new pronouns that have come into vogue recently and how we feel about them. Also, there's a series in the New York Times called 1619. And that is the date when the first slave ship showed up in Virginia. And Mike is going to talk about his history with storytelling. I am. I'm going to tell a story about telling stories. Oh, that's a good one. I know that'll be a hit. I'm very sad that Orange is the New Black has come to an end. I'm really going to miss it. It was such a special show for me. And even though I went through a couple of seasons where I wasn't that happy with it, I really loved the characters and loved the relationships. And it ended very well. There were some a couple of actual chest-clutching tragedies that mm. took place and other things that... Although I wish that the characters hadn't ended up still in the prison mm. as they were, but mm. their circumstances for some of them looked to be a little brighter than they were at the beginning of the season. So there's that. And they had a lovely little farewell for everyone. All of the actresses got to have a moment saying goodbye. And I'll miss it. I'll miss them all. Mm. I can't believe that it's over. Well, that's rare to find a show that you get that kind of emotional bond with where you actually yeah. feel attached to it that way. It's true. And it, it started, I mean, this was the second Netflix series that ever was on the air. And I think that binging was attributed to this series because it was the first one, one where they posted all 13 episodes at right. one time. What about, I remember Breaking Bad and Mad Men, or were those later? That's or? true. No, Breaking Bad, I definitely binged Breaking Bad, but that was because I was catching up with it. I, did it start on a network, though? Did it start like on FX or something like that? Or did it start on a streaming platform? Orange is the New Black? No, I'm sorry. I'm, Breaking, I'm Bad Breaking Bad was on... It was a weekly. It was on AMC. Okay, so you couldn't really binge it at no. first. No, you couldn't. People did it after the fact. That's what I did. Yes, after the fact. When I was... Somebody introduced me to it and then right. I had seasons to go. And Mad Men yeah. too, probably. Or was Mad Men was also on AMC. Yeah, okay. And See, it, I come so late to the party on all of these <laughs> that I just assume they were always on Netflix or Amazon. Better late than but ever. It's true. It's true. I'm just a slow arrival. The thing about Orange is the New Black is I watched it with my oldest daughter in New York when my youngest daughter was an intern there. And we were staying in an apartment and my oldest came and visited and we watched it. And it was just, it was such a great show to watch with her and all of these wonderful female characters they were all completely individuated, very different body types than you're used mm -hmm. to seeing on most network shows, certainly. Right. And I will just very much miss it. So goodbye, Orange is the New Black. But hello, Genji Cohen, who was the creator of Orange is the New Black, had a new show start a couple of years ago. It's called Glow, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. Right. I've heard a lot about it. It's, it's wrestling. I always think it's about 
because I haven't watched it. And when you mentioned it, I thought, oh, it's the one about roller. Is there another show about roller derby? Not that I know. No, of. this is the show that's about wrestling that I always get mixed up on, and I think it's about roller derby. But they're kind of similar in that they're they're pretty similar. It's about fake fighting for entertainment purposes. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I don't know. Roller derby looks a lot more dangerous than fake wrestling does. Mm. But the wrestling that they do, I mean, I know that the actresses had to go through training to be able to do this stuff right. without injuring themselves right. or others. But it's a lot of fun. It's very different than Orange is the New Black. It's a half an hour for one thing. It's it's a true comedy. And again, there are different characters, different body types, all kinds of intertwining relationships mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. storylines. And it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad to have it as a backup. The first season was just, felt like just fluff. Mm-hmm. And then the second season really seemed to deal with, it takes place in the 1980s. And okay. it's based on an actual program. So the second season has a lot more to do with, it came out right around the time that the old Me Too mm. movement was happening. And it dealt with inappropriate relationships mm-hmm. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated that mm-hmm. because it seemed very contemporaneous. So that's my recommendation is to go check out Glow and hopefully I'll have some other recommendations as I explore what's out there. Well, they both sound like shows that give women actors and women characters a chance to break out of only being a a romantic interest or a, I don't know, an I Love Lucy Zany comic kind of character. And even in that, that was still in the frame, even with a comedic character like that, or like Mary Tyler Moore, some of the comedic roles, they've been framed in, or defined, the, the characters are defined by the relationship they have or do not have with a man. Except for Mary Tyler Moore was really about much less She was less breaking about, out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, they, would, well, they would joke about her singleness. Yes. But that's it, true. But, uh, and she wasn't single by the end of the series. Right. Right. And that was all fine. But it's just, it's kind of cool that there's a larger range of options of how to yeah, present people. Yeah, it really is. Kinds of people to put the spotlight on. Yeah, and it's it's really fun looking at the big shoulder pads and oh, the yeah. big hair and yeah. all of that stuff that was going on in the 80s. On to pronouns. Oh, yes, and gender identity. Gender identity. I've been struggling recently with the pronouns they, their, and them for someone who does not identify as one particular gender or another, or maybe transitioning and Mm -hmm. does not want to be identified as male or female. So my issue with the they, their, them pronouns is that it feels unnatural, unlike when Mrs. and Miss became Ms. during the women's movement. Mm -hmm. This feels awkward because it's meant to refer to multiples more than one. So if we're saying Alex is someone who doesn't identify with male or female. Mm-hmm. Alex has a hat. Their hat is black. That's a tough one. I'm, I'm not even giving a very good example of what's difficult about it, but it does seem unnatural to me. And yet I want to honor the fact that not everybody wants to be identified as male or female. Right. Our language just doesn't have a convenient built-in way to do that. I think that some languages, German, I believe, I was they have a you. neuter gender pronoun group. They do. Uh, yeah, they have feminine, masculine, and neutral or neutered. And I guess there are other languages that do. And I think I've been listening to my History of English podcast. And maybe I was going to ask. It may be that Old English had, had more of those differentiations that we've dropped. In English, we dropped everything. We don't yes. even refer to things as feminine or masculine. Right. It would seem strange to do so, although so many languages do as second nature. The only thing about the them, they, there for what you would say differently gendered people, or people who an, don't an identify in a cis male, female 
is an aspect of the, it is it is uncomfortable and it does feel forced and it does feel like we're trying to massage the language into doing something that it's not equipped to do. The only thing I think is positive about that is for people who've had to live under the framework of male or female, you must choose and you must be one of these two things. The discomfort we're feeling with trying to make our language accommodate that is probably a drop in the bucket compared to what a <laughs> transgender person feels. I agree. I don't know that that justifies it, but it, at least it makes it interesting. When I'm doing it, I'm thinking, well, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not that I am made uncomfortable by it. What I'm really questioning is whether it will stick because oh. it is uncomfortable, because it feels unnatural. I just wonder if there is a way for us to find another pronoun or a set of pronouns that will work for an individual that's neither male nor female. I took a class in, like a sensitivity training class about, gosh, it's been a few years ago now, where I work, and it was about gender and also sexual orientation. And that's where I first got told about this. And that was a few years ago, so it wasn't as common as it is now. And where I work on your, when you send an email at the bottom underneath your name and your information, you put your preferred pronouns. So people put preferred pronouns, him, his, her, hers, them, their, theirs. You get to put what you want yeah. to have used when you, you yourself are being addressed by someone else. And so it's becoming more commonplace. But so I know at work, if I have to write a letter or even on uh, social media, if I have to give an announcement of something that's happening, when I, when I put the announcement about our podcast on Facebook, I said, because it is now the law that everyone has, and I said, their own podcast. And I could hear my dear departed mother griping in the background going, no, you can't mix those two. You can't have a singular and a plural, you know, in the same sentence. Yes. But now you can. And it's, I guess maybe it's just still an experiment, but at least it's raising awareness. It's making people think more. Yes. And that part's good. Yes. And it's a little, it's like shoes that don't fit. Something does not feel quite right about it. I think it's a healthy discomfort. It may fade and we may find a different way. And there are these alternate words that I learned in my sensitivity training oh, class really I don't remember exactly what they are Z they start with Z and they are neuter gendered pronouns and the plan when I took my class a few years ago was to use those as an alternate to them they there but I think those have fallen away oh, interesting. but maybe those should come back because at least that gives a real alternate yes. to him and her yes he and she that can stand alone in the light and be something that we use and maybe additive adding yes. to our vocabulary instead of substituting something that feels right. grammatically difficult. Did you happen to read about um, journalist, his name is Farhad Manju? Mm, I don't he wrote know an op-ed in the New York Times, and he said he wanted to be referred to. He's a cis man, but he wanted to be referred to as they, them, and their, confusing just everybody. Hmm. I didn't know if perhaps he was a, a man who was transitioning. I knew him as a man. He identified as a man. But no, it really was he felt that everybody should transition to gender-neutral pronouns, which I'm all for if we could figure out how to do it. I'm all for it. it. You know what? It's just discussing it makes me realize 
language is power. And conventions yes. of language and grammar are agreements that cultures make yes. to, be, to do certain things the same way. It's a way of standardizing not only what we say, but how we categorize and think of things and people and objects right. and actions and all of those things. Yes. So I can see why if, you're, if you are a member or you identify as being a member of a group that has been made invisible in some way or marginalized in some way, you would want to go to the language and see if you could change the language yes. in order to change the power equation. That's what happened with Ms. Yes. And Ms. worked because it yeah. was a contraction mm -hmm. and it didn't mess with conventions. Mm -hmm. It was a very elegant solution to something that was a problem. We were taught as kids that when in English, when you're talking about, how does this work now? Wait, when it's unclear, you're talking about a theoretical person who's not really there. Let me think if I can think of an example. Anyone who travels to Europe should get his passport in place. And you were, we were taught it's his passport. When it's not clear if it's male or female, then it's you male. use the male. Yes. And so the <laughs> one little act of rebellion is I try to make a point when I'm writing things and things like that come up. I work at a school and they come up a lot. If I have a sentence like that in a business email I'm writing, I will purposely say, anyone who wants to come to the party should get her reservation in as soon as possible. <laughs> I just, if, if it's in doubt at all, yeah. I go because I figured, yeah. you know, we had 2,000 years or more right. of, at least in the English language, maybe there's other languages that don't give such preference to male over female. I was going to ask you, since you're so into languages lately. Well, I don't know that much about other ones. I just know French and I know English and I know a little German, but I think Western culture in general, those are all Western culture yeah. languages. Yeah. Yeah. We have like thousands of years where, if in doubt, use male. And of course, the thought behind that is males are more important. I was going to say it's subtle, but it's not even all that subtle. I wonder if now you're going to use there instead? If I'm going to choose to do it? I have done it some. There's cases where it doesn't quite fit. There's cases where saying her or his works better, but that's a good point. Maybe I'm still excluding the there yeah. option. I, I don't know. Which seems like it would be natural. It does, but it seems case. so easy. It's almost a cop-out. <laughs> <laughs> then you're just being like purposely vague. <laughs> but, but you're also being inclusive. Yes. I don't know. It's a conundrum. Well, I appreciate what you said about language being important because I think that we need to find new ways of discussing our genders or not discussing our genders mm -hmm. or not making them a point in our language. Or at least being conscious of how our use of language reveals some consensus that our culture has come to that maybe is not a healthy consensus yes. about who deserves rank higher than someone else. Yes, very good. I'm going to jump from that because I wanted to talk about the project that I, I found in my Sunday New York Times. I know I referenced that, but I, guys, I do read it. <laughs> I read it the every day. The paper version. Yeah, the real paper version. <laughs> exactly. And in my paper version, I found that the magazine was entirely dedicated to the year 1619, which was the year that the first slave ship came to Point Comfort, which is the port in the British colony of Virginia. So that is where, in at least this project's perspective, the United States really began. Mm -hmm. And in reading this, I have to say, it has opened my mind so much. It really makes the point that we trod upon not just what I will now refer to as enslaved persons rather than slaves, language being powerful as it is. They built the United States. 
the cotton industry, we wouldn't have settled the West as early as we did if the South hadn't needed more land for cotton. And cotton was the biggest industry. The ways in which we denied Black individuals their personhoods for all of that time is absolutely remarkable and stomach-churning. So I just want to encourage anyone who thinks they might be interested. The entire magazine is devoted to this one principle, which is how white America has denied Black America and Native American America and Chinese America and women as well their personhood and how our country was imagined by a group of white straight men. It's under those rules that we still currently live and we amend them and amend them. But in reality, we owe a debt to the black population of the United States of America. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to pay that debt, but it seems that it is time to have the conversation about reparations. So now it's time for Mike to talk about his storytelling life. Oh, so what did you want to know? I wanted to know when you first got the bug to tell stories because you were an actor. I right. knew you as an actor. That's right. I knew you as a singer, I have a dancer, past. actor. I have a checkered past. <laughs> yeah, I was a dancer, singer, actor, computer operator when I couldn't get singing or dancing or acting. And you were a cabaret and actor. I was as a well. cabaret singer. I was a stand up comedian for a short while and a joke writer for a while. What happened? Well, you know, I moved back to L.A. from New York 20 years ago or more. Just about exactly 20 years ago, actually. Now. And the reason for that was? I had been selling jokes to The Tonight Show, and I had wanted to... <laughs> I had gone to Switzerland to study psychology with Arnie Mandel. and a natural transition. I, as most people often do. <laughs> and while in Switzerland, having a gay old time, I thought, I know what I want to be. I want to be Rob Petrie from the Dick Van Dyke Show. Oh. I want to write comedy and be in a room with fun people and think of funny things to say all the time. So I thought, I said, I'll be a sitcom writer. And I knew a guy who managed a lot of big comedy writers. And the reason I knew him was that in my cabaret act, I wanted to do a song called Making Love Alone. That's a hysterical song about masturbation. And I had heard it on Saturday Night Live. Bernadette Peters had sung it. And so I looked up who wrote it, and then I looked up, it was Marilyn Suzanne Miller, who was a big writer in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Huh. And her manager was Barry Secunda, and he had an office in the Brill Building in New York. Wow. So I called him up, and I said, I want to sing this song in a little cabaret act I'm doing. Do you think I could possibly get a copy of it? And he said, absolutely. He was very open to give me someone else's material. <laughs> no, but it was his client, so it was all above board. Um, so that's when I met Barry Secunda. Then I went to Switzerland, and then I had my Rob Petrie epiphany. So I went to Barry Secunda, and I said, how am I going to do this? How am I going to be a famous writer that people call you because they want their material? And he says, well, you should do stand-up. So I just took him at his word. I didn't question it. And I didn't survey anybody else. I, he said, that's where they're finding the writers is in the stand-up world. So I went into stand-up in New York and I started doing open mics and I got into that whole little subculture. I just want to ask one question. Is yeah. this around the time that Tim, Home Improvement, Tim Allen. Tim Allen. And Jerry Seinfeld, was this around the time that those... It was a bit before... Was okay. And the reason I know that is that when I was trying to parlay all of this into a TV sitcom writing career, I would come out to L.A. and someone, <laughs> it was funny, someone I knew, knew a guy who was an accountant on the Home Improvement Show. Oh. And, and he knew writers and stuff. And so he had me out to Disney Studios for lunch to kind of just 
show me around and kind of give me a taste of the whole thing. And he, he actually had tried to help me in my budding little career there. But back to stand-up, I started going to these open mics and I got into the whole subculture of comedy. But I had two good friends, one good friend, who's still my dear, dear friend, Linda Bianchi. And she was doing stand-up too. So it made it kind of fun because we were both doing it. We could both comment to each other about kind of the zaniness of it and the weirdness of it. And uh, Did you go to open mic nights we, together? We did. We did. I, oh God, in those open mics, they were fun. Actually, I met a lot of nice people doing stand-up. But as I got a little bit better and got some nicer places, I, you know, I was never like headlining at any big clubs in Las Vegas or anything close to that. But I got hired by the Improvisation in New York. Oh, wow. And it was a big feather in my cap. And I wasn't quite ready, really. But the owner, Silver Friedman, she took a liking to me. And I reminded her of Jack Parr. <laughs> well, nobody who was doing stand-up when I was doing it even knew who Jack Parr was. Because it, well, we know, but I, I was already I was quite a long ways along when I started stand-up. I wasn't twenty years old; I was like forty. So I knew who Jack Parr was, but nobody else did. But because she liked me, and I reminded her of Jack Parr. She hired me, and so I started performing at the Improv, which was great because I heard great comics there. Every night, I would hear Ray Romano. Oh, wow. Because he wasn't famous yet. Really? Yeah. Brett Butler, because she wasn't famous uh -huh. yet. There was another who I'm blanking on, but I heard great people. Brett Butler was, was and still is, in my view, the best stand-up comic I've ever heard. Her material was so funny, but so raw, and she would always take it a little past the edge where you were comfortable. Not enough to freak you out, but enough to kind of make you wonder if you should be laughing at all. Really? But it made you laugh all the harder. Oh, interesting. You know? Because oh. she's she had her show and mm -hmm. was very difficult and I think had some substance problems. And, yeah. And kind of tanked it and was got I a reputation so. as someone who was very difficult to work with. Yeah. I think being a woman, especially, but even being a man or a woman and carrying a show like that where the financial yeah. pressure is crushing. I don't see how it doesn't drive everyone totally insane who's in that Me position. Either. I mean, they say Lucille Ball was difficult, but I mean, they're the head of this big juggernaut. And she was a producer as well. That has all this corporate pressure on it to put certain messages out there and all of that. And anyway, I started doing it and I started selling jokes to Jay Leno. And that's when I decided I need to go to L.A. And I, I applied for a sitcom writing workshop at the American Film Institute up on Western and uh -huh. Los Feliz. Uh -huh. And I got in. So I came out to L.A. for a few weeks and I took that and it was great. It was inspiring. And I wrote a, an awesome spec script of a Frasier. Uh, what was my title of my Frasier episode? I can't think of it, but it was a cute plot about an opera singer who comes to town and Frazier wants to impress her because he's such an opera fan. And he manages to throw a party that she comes to his house and she ends up sleeping with his father. <laughs> <laughs> And not paying any attention to Fraser. Well, I not to change the purview here, yeah. but I read your Murphy Brown spec, which I thought was hysterical. God, I can't even remember the plot of that. But it had something to do with Judy Garland or somewhere over the rainbow or mm. something to do with that. I think my Fraser title was "Whose Soiree Is It Anyway?" Because <laughs> <laughs> he was all excited about throwing the soiree for the opera singer. That was it. Whose soiree is it anyway? So, so then I ended up coming out to LA and I actually got an agent and I went on some interviews, but it never really blossomed. And I don't know if that was my own fear of success or just the way the cards were dealt or what, but I, I sort of left it. But I kept going with the joke writing free, as a freelancer. I just did that as almost kind of a hobby, but I would make a little tiny bit of money at it. And then one night I was driving on a freeway here in LA and I heard a show on KPFK, which in LA, as we both know, is a nice, strong, left-wing, leaning 
leaning yeah. uh, news and jazz and music station. And I heard a woman telling a funny story about not liking her driver's license picture oh. and having to go back to the DMV several times until she could get the picture the way she wanted it. And all the excuses she had to think up to get a new license because they don't let you just go back because you need a new photo or you don't like your photo. And I recognized her and she was somebody that was in a group that I, a kind of a support group that I oh, attended. Really? Yeah. And that was Beverly Mickens. Oh. Who runs Story Salon. Okay. So in that KPFK show, she mentioned this Story Salon thing that she did on Wednesday nights. So I started going to that just to check it out. Oh, okay. And so I fell into storytelling that way. But it, it all kind of blossomed because I, at the same time I was doing that, I had started going to, my mom had died, and I had started going to Oil Can Harry's. And I started writing stories about my, my social anxiety that I would experience in this gay bar and how much of an outsider I felt like in this place where I should feel like an insider but never did. And I think that's been the theme of my stories ever since. Did David Sedaris factor in there at all? I mean, was, were you doing this before he kind of broke out? Or I My memory is it was a long time ago. He started in the early 90s, I think. Oh, really? That long ago? I think okay. so. I know that he was already well-established before I did any of this. Okay. And I had read a few of his things. But to tell you the truth, it's not like his work inspired me to do storytelling. But I will tell you that when I started writing my stories... To tell them, I would try to make them sound funny in the way that he was funny. I would try to imitate his humor style because huh. I liked the dryness of it. Yes. And I liked the way he would make a flat, simple observation. But in stating what he was seeing, it would just be hysterical. But it was just a, fa it wasn't a clever turn of phrase. You know, it wasn't a sense of, oh, look what I can do. It was more like a simplicity to it. He'll just yes. state this is the way it was. And by boiling something down to its barest little appearance, he's able to name it and call it in such a way that it sparks such humor. Well, he and it's has dry such as a, a bone. perspective on things. He does yeah. conjure imagery mm -hmm. that I, is so unique to him. Yeah. And his family life and his parents. Mm -hmm. And I remember he once said that his family didn't have regular bedtimes. They just fell asleep wherever they were like a family of cats. Uh -huh. And yeah. that gave me such that's right. a window that's, that's into a, what his family life was like. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so I've been doing it for many years now. Yes, with Beverly. Uh, do you yeah. go every Wednesday? Uh, I don't go every Wednesday, but I go many, if not most Wednesdays. And I don't even tell a story except maybe once a month. But... It's led to other things, a couple of gigs with KPCC and other storytelling events around town, even around the country. I've done stuff in uh, Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, and uh, where else? Uh, that may be the extent of my geographical reach. I think it's time for The Moth. <laughs> it is, but see, The Moth is a competition, and I have a bee in my bonnet about uh -huh, that, that uh -huh. I have to let that bee go. I have to kill no, that I, bee. I support your concern about that, because it is, it is an odd kind of venue for people people to compete in well yeah because storytelling is all about vulnerability and then it's like i'm gonna be i'm gonna tell you the truth about me but i want it to be better than someone else's yeah so that i can get the prize and go on to the next round yeah. but another way to look at it is i just say to myself lambert just get over it just accept that there's a competitive aspect to it you don't have to love the competitive aspect just accept it and go out there and share your story the way you would anywhere else well you're always the best whenever i oh see you're you. very kind well no, it's true I, oh well thanks well I enjoy doing it so much when, it doesn't happen every time, but when I get the experience of conveying to someone else the feeling I had doing something, there's something that makes me feel so 
freed and liberated. It's like, I need for you to know what it felt like yeah. to do this thing. Yeah. And, and when it's happening and it's working, it's thrilling. It feels like you're on a ride and it's just kind of yeah. going along and it's fast and it's kind of exciting, like some big ride at Disneyland. Yeah, you always seem very free while you're doing it. When you're telling your stories and you're having the experiences like you're reliving it mm -hmm. and the audience is always with you. It's just a, a frisson, uh, an experience. It's really very satisfying. Well, I love doing it and yeah, it's I'm getting more, having more fun doing it as I'm finally learning in my later years to relax while I'm doing it and learn to kind of let go of God, I hope they're going to like it. Yeah. But there's always going to be some of that and I, I've come to accept that too because I think it's in our DNA. We want others to accept us because we're we're social creatures so it's there's something very natural and you could say honorable about wanting people to receive you well not that it's great to focus on their opinion but let's face it it's just part of being human is wanting to be liked but you but when I let go of that yeah I just re focus on relaxing and just getting the message out and, and just trying to stay as calm as I can inwardly it always goes better well, you've said for a while that it's really about that connection. It is about connection. That's why I feel whole when I do it because I'm touching. I'm I am connecting with people. Yeah, and because you put the work in, and I feel like you really know how to tell a story. You know how to give it a beginning, a middle, and a finale. It's all those jokes for Jay Leno. It helped me kind <laughs> of. It, you know, that was a good training in a way. Even though those are only three sentences long, so they're very short stories. Set up, bridge, and punchline. But in a way, doing all those jokes for him, it helped me try to get to the gist of what's happening with something and also try to tie something to something that it doesn't have any apparent connection to, but you're going to find one. And then it's going to be like, oh, yes, of course, those two things fit together. Uh -huh. I just should give an example so it's not so theoretical, but like my friends Linda and, and Rich and I were writing jokes in the early 90s and the Tanya Harding story hit during oh, yeah. that time. And so a joke that I wrote that Rich also wrote, we both submitted the same joke without conversing with each other because it was just in the zeitgeist. Wow. And the joke was, Tanya Harding just got a new product endorsement deal. It's for the club. <laughs> the club was that <laughs> thing funny. that you put on your steering wheel. <laughs> but that's that's kind of an example. It's like, oh my God, an anti-theft device and Tanya Harding have nothing to do in common. But suddenly right. they do yeah. because of this unexpected way you tie them yeah, together. Yeah. Did he buy the joke? He bought it from Rich and not from oh. me and I have... Always had a chip <laughs> on my shoulder about that. Time to let that go. I know, I know. <laughs> well, Rich is a great guy, so I need to uh, to free that. Yes, free myself of that. And, and I actually have. When we first started conceptualizing what the podcast would be, we had this idea that there would be certain times when you would tell a story. Right. So I just want to make that known to our audience that there will be times like last week when you told the story about your fascination with France. Anyway, that's going to do it for us for now. Thanks so much for catching up with us, and we will see you next time. See you, boomers and others. Bye. Thanks for coming. Bye.